And this morning we have the privilege of having Rick Porter with us um, to bring God's message um, to to our hearts today. Thank you. I'm feeling a little tension this morning because there's a sweet, sweet spirit in your, this place. There's not a pastor within miles. The elders and other leaders have led us this morning. And you really don't need me. You are being well led. There's a sweet spirit in this place. I, I got here, I didn't realize, you know, I'm not from Jackson. I didn't realize that if church starts at 9.30, you should come at 9.29.59. So I was here at 9. I just thought you should be here. That, old folks get there early. I don't know if you've noticed that. But, so I was here at 9, but I got to hear the worship team. And then I heard some beautiful piano. I don't know if you were just loose. Uh, you were figuring out what you were going to play. Well, it was beautiful. Uh, and just it was my upper room here for about 15, 20 minutes before the service began. So there's a sweet spirit, and I'm kind of feeling like, wow, about all I can do is mess this up. I don't think I can make it any better. But we need the word of the Lord. So we're going to receive the word of the Lord, and I'll try to stay out of the way of the word of the Lord, and it won't return void. So it's, uh, it's nice to be with you. Now, probably good that I confess before I read the scripture. I have a confession. I've already, I've already been to the Bergen Bar this morning. Anyone, anyone else been there yet? Probably I'm the only one that's been to the Bergen Bar today. Um, my wife, Diane, wanted to be in Mountain Lake because up in Mountain Lake, it's powwow, uh, which is a big deal if you're from Mountain Lake, and she is. So, uh, so I dropped her off at the Bergen Bar, wished her well hitchhiking the rest of the way, Lord willing, she's made it to the park in Mountain Lake. Actually, our daughter picked her up and took her on up to Mountain Lake. But, uh, yeah, so that's why Diane's not here. And I'm going to rush up to powwow whenever we conclude here for my own little Father's Day celebration. So, Lord, thank you that we can be together in this place, and we hardly need another prayer, but it'll help me engage to say we trust you in these moments. We ask you to minister life to these, your children. Your beautiful presence, even in pain or loss, brokenness, condemnation, anything that's come against them, I ask that they would stand firmly in the truth that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That you would speak to them today, your fatherhood, and it would take deep root in them, and that they would go home celebrating that they sit at the table of the king. We worship and thank you today in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to move that down just a little bit. Our text today is 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's the story of Mephibosheth. 2 Samuel chapter 9 is page 260 in your pew Bible. And I am going to read the chapter. It's only 12 verses. And uh, it's a great story, and many of you know it probably from Sunday school. Uh, we're going to take a quick look. But Psalm 68 says, God is a father to the fatherless, 
He's a father to the fatherless. And we're going to see the poster child for that truth in a guy named Mephibosheth who was fatherless. And worse than that, he was, he was cursed by his lineage. And he comes to a realization that he belongs to the king and that the king cares for him. And that's what I want to leave you with today. We sang it. I don't have anything to do with the songs, but you sang it. I'm trading my sorrows. I'm trading my shame. And he did that and received the fatherhood of God. Second Samuel 9, reading uh, the, the 12 verses. David asked, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied, which is what you say to kings when they ask you things like that. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Look at the heart of David, who's showing us the heart of Jesus. He wants to show kindness. Ziba answered the king, There's still a son of Jonathan. He's lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodibar. So King David had him brought from Lodibar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. So Mephibosheth was going to get a lot of help. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. This story uh, is deeply personal to me. To put it in simple terms, to quote the word of God, I'm lame in both feet. So Mephibosheth is, in a baptistic sort of way, my patron saint. If I was to put a statue on my dashboard, I don't know, I don't know if our Catholic friends still do that. Uh, 
But if I, if I was to do it, like our Catholic friends once did, I'd put a statue of Mephibosheth. And I would show his lameness because it is the point at which I connect to him. I was pastoring in Canada and I had uh, historically some issues and I knew they would probably come on me generationally, genetically, in my ankles, but it was beginning to impact my ability to pastor. And in fact, I believe Satan himself took advantage of it when I tried to preach and when I was under stress. I'd come under considerable pain. I had surgery to repair one ankle, uh, to fuse it, and that helped because it gives me kind of a place to stand. But the fact of the matter is pain was, uh, I really had to make pain my friend because it was and continues to be my daily accompaniment. But I was discouraged by it all. I was feeling defeated and like I couldn't go on and the pressures of all that I was trying to do were overwhelming me. And uh, in my upper room, which was actually a lower room down in the basement, I was reminded of Mephibosheth. And what hit me so hard was how in this text it keeps repeating that he was lame. Even when you get to the end of the story, when he's sitting at the king's table, he's received his new inheritance as a son, if you will, adopted of David, rather than a grandson of Saul, who he assumed David would hate because Saul had tried to kill David and remove him. And, and we get to the end of the story, and it's such a good news story, and uh, Mephibosheth is seated, seated at the king's table, and then how does it conclude? And he was lame in both feet. He was still lame. It was still a thing that was happening to him and something that he had to endure. So it was very personal to me to read of this guy who was, and here's our title, and I notice you've got a little note sheet in there, and I don't know if you're note takers or not. I'm not, because after I get done, I can't read them anyway. But uh, he's lame and loved. He's lame and loved, and there's a sense in which we are all lame and loved. So you may say, well, Rick, I'm not lame. So how does this apply to me? And the answer is, he didn't just have a limp. He had a lineage problem. He didn't know whose kid he was. His dad had been killed when he was five years old, so he never really knew his dad. And his grandfather was presumed to be someone who was hated in David's time. And therefore, if it was determined that he was a grandson of Saul, he would be hated and sought out as well. But here's the truth of today's scripture. The heart of God the Father is toward you in whatever your handicap is. A sin handicap, a physical handicap, a social handicap, a handicap of your lineage, your inheritance, your name, your family, those who have gone before you. You know, it was interesting. I was talking to a fellow the other day about a fellow in Arnold's Park, where I'm from, the Okaboji area. And uh, I didn't know this guy knew the guy I was mentioning. And the guy I was mentioning has something of a reputation, and it's not a positive one. And the guy I was talking to said, Oh, yeah, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I knew his dad and his grandfather. 
They're all the same. They've got kind of a mean streak in the way they treat people. And I thought, wow. That's all been inherited, both literally, but also in the perceptions of people around him. Because the guy I was talking to wasn't going to let him out of the box, even if they tried to crawl out of the box. They'd had generational problems in the way they behaved toward other people. Accepting your true identity as a child of the king releases you. Let me say that again. Accepting your true identity as a child of the king releases you to fully receive your inheritance. I'm going to ask a couple of questions to explore Mephibosheth's false and true identities and our own. And we're going to walk out, I trust, we've already prayed for a manifestation and ministry of the work of the Holy Spirit. We're going to walk out with a little lighter step. We may still limp, but we'll limp and dance simultaneously, being reminded who we are in Christ, being reminded how we are children of the King. First question, what was Mephibosheth's apparent identity? Number one, he was a grandson of Saul. That They didn't have DNA testing, but if they did, it would have proved it. They didn't have Ancestry.com, but if they did, they would have found out. He was a grandson of Saul, and therefore, presumably, and I like this Latin phrase, persona non grata in the kingdom. A person with no grace. There'd be no grace for him. But what does the king say? The king asks, is there no one still left of the house of Saul? It was presumed that to be a member of the house of Saul was a curse. But King David, who pictures Jesus for us, long before Jesus, 700 more years, King David David says, I'm looking for people from the house of Saul so I can show, very literally, kindness like God's. I want to love on them. So Ziba answered and said, there's still a son of Jonathan. And then he has to add, He's crippled in both feet. Why did Ziba say that? A, because the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. B, because perhaps it had become the very definition of who Mephibosheth was. He was not worth much in a culture that valued work and self-dependence. He was a person with a disability which was an inability. Yeah, there's one guy left, but here's what I think Zebra was saying. Don't waste much time on him. There's not much hope for him. There's one other factor that may have come into play here. Mephibosheth was also a nephew of a guy named Ishbosheth, who opposed David's kingship. His name means man of shame. Mephibosheth never knew his dad, never knew his grandpa, except as a five-year-old when they died, and had one father-like man in his life, an uncle, and he was absolutely sure that David would hate his uncle too, because his uncle 
hated David. He was a grandson of Saul. Secondly, he was physically handicapped. We've already beat on that because the text beats on it. He's crippled in both feet. Here's how that happened back in 2 Samuel chapter 4, a few chapters before. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan, that is that they'd been overcome in battle with the Philistines, Jonathan was killed, Saul took his own life rather than be captured. When they came to Jezreel and his nurse took Mephibosheth up and fled in fear. She fled in fear because she was the nurse of Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son, and once they were killed in battle, she was in jeopardy, the boy was in jeopardy, so she picked him up and fled in fear, and as she fled in her haste, he fell, she dropped him, she tripped, something happened, and he was injured and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Virtually every time he's mentioned, his lameness is mentioned. It's as if it has become his identity. Mephibosheth the cripple. Mephibosheth the grandson of Saul. The text goes on. It says he was living in Lodibar. It's an out-of-the-way place. It's, don't, okay, don't, it's Bergen. He was living in Lodibar, an out-of-the-way place, the name of which means no pasture. (laughs) No pasture. No communication. You look up Lodibar in Wikipedia, and it says it had a reputation of being a ghetto in Old Testament times. Where is he, the king asked, seeking? Heart of God, the heart of David, the heart of Jesus, the heart of the Spirit of God, the pre- contemporary presence of Christ in our world. Where is he? Ziba answered, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel and Lodibar. So King David had him brought from Lodibar. Go get him. I want to love him. You know, here's this picture of what happens to us when we fail to understand our true identity as children of the King, redeemed through the finished work of Christ, received into the household of God, never fatherless, no matter how fatherless we are in earthly terms, never abused or rejected or abandoned, no matter how much we may feel that way in earthly terms, always received, accepted, affirmed, embraced, But when we don't know that, there's this tendency to run off, to hide, to isolate, to lick our wounds, to be afraid. What happened to the prodigal of Luke 15? He moved to a far country where he ate with the pigs. And I know there's a few hog farmers here. I didn't mean anything by that, incidentally. The demonized man of Gerizines, where did he live? He lived among the tombs. He lived with the dead because he was as good as dead. I saw it on Facebook a few weeks ago. When you are in a dark place, you sometimes tend to think you have been buried. 
Mephibosheth thought he'd been buried, thought he was dead, thought he had no life left. I have a friend, that's all I'll say, I'll be that general, who she has lots of pain in her life, she has lots of shame in her life. If we wanted to put out labels, I could come up with several of them. I won't give them to you because it might identify her and I don't want to do that. But she won't go to church. Rarely she'll show up in a church. She professes that she's a follower of Jesus, but she's a wounded follower of Jesus. And she's afraid to engage because she's filled with shame. I'm trading my sorrows. I'm trading my shame. She hadn't traded hers. She's kept it. So she goes to church, and I say, it was great to see you in church. I said, why'd you sit back by yourself in the corner? She said, because I know people would smell that I smoked. And I'm like, really? You think Jesus is ticked off that you smoke? I don't think he is. I think he loves you. I think he wants to make you his woman. And maybe he wants to heal you of smoking, but let's let that come in its own time. Let's just receive his love. Because he calls you his daughter. But her dad was an alcoholic. Her dad abused her. She fell into the arms of a man early in her life. And they made a baby together. And the baby had serious handicaps and still does. And so she's just lived her whole life under this cloud of failure and shame and condemnation and a sense of non-acceptance. And so it was with Mephibosheth. And so it can be with so many of us. No sense of our valued identity before the king. What did Mephibosheth say? Mephibosheth bowed down when David approached him and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Have you known that person? I have. I've been that person. Have you been that person? Are you that person? No sense of your value to the Creator? not convinced that God showed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sometimes these messages are built into us as children. Negative messages, perhaps from a father, a very powerful voice. Perhaps from someone who wasn't your father but was standing in and didn't love you like your father would have loved you. Or maybe from a mother, or maybe from a teacher, or maybe from some important adult in your life. Ugly words, condemning words, words that labeled you. I know that was my experience as well. And I'm not going to go into that, but I could recall it and still come to tears if I spoke of it. Where did that come from in Mephibosheth's life? Well, the absence of his father was part of it, but let me tell you where it really came from, I think, and I'm speculating. It came from the nurse. The nurse was brokenhearted. The nurse was afraid. The nurse was ashamed. Here she was trying to save the boy. And instead, she dropped him. And he suffered something that perhaps in our day they would fix in an emergency room, in an orthopedic hospital, but didn't happen for him. And for the rest of his days, his identity was that of lameness and crippledness. And so he saw himself as a dead dog before the king. Chuck Swindoll wrote these words. I, I love these words. Turmoil often results from having too much misinformation 
not enough reliable, essential truth. <laughs> the Mephibosheth story is reliable, essential truth. It's not just history, it's redemptive history. It's a story of redemption and restoration and renewal and salvation and all those good words we use. Turmoil often results from having too much misinformation, not enough reliable, essential truth. Moreover, in the absence of adequate information, listen to this, we fill in the gaps with what we dread most. The result is a distorted picture of the problem, a pessimistic perspective riddled with our worst fears. For most of my life since that day in my lower room, when this text was quickened to my heart because of my lameness and my sorrow and some of it attached to shame visited on me through parental wounding, which incidentally wounded people wound and I'm sure my mom lived out exactly what she'd received as a girl. Sitting there, ever since that came over me, I remind myself pretty often and I encourage you to do the same. I sit at the king's table. Every moment of every day, through Christ my king, I'm in the line of David, I sit at the king's table. And I love to encourage myself with that. I came across this on Facebook too, which probably tells you already I'm on Facebook too much. But boy, you should see my wife. <laughs> the devil knows your name, but he calls you by your sin. Your heavenly Father knows your sin, but he calls you by your name. What did David, David said two things when Mephibosheth came to him. First word out of David's mouth was Mephibosheth. Your, the name. And I'm sure... You know, there's a lot of ways to say a name. Usually if you're angry, you say the middle name too. I'm not sure Mephibosheth had a middle name. I don't think he really needed one. His first name was long enough. But anyway, I don't think David, David said, Mephibosheth, you know, angry. I think David said, Mephibosheth. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you how he said it. Happened to me this morning. I met Cora. <laughs> Cora walked in at 9 2959 and and um, her red hair was like a oh it was like a magnet to me because I've got a few redheads in my family I was one myself back in the day it's fading in two ways turning white and falling out but but uh, Cora and so I said to mom whose name I didn't learn Rachel I said, what's her name? She said, Cora. And everything in me just wanted to hug Cora, which probably good not to let weird old men who you don't know hug Cora, but, but everything in me wanted to hug Cora. And this, I think I maybe did say her name. I don't know if I didn't in my heart. I said, Cora, what a beautiful baby. What a beautiful name. That's how David spoke to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, my long-lost son. It wasn't his son at all, but he had promised Jonathan 
that Jonathan's descendants would be like sons and daughters to him. And he would care for them, David said. And back in the day, it was like, David, is he ever going to make anything of himself? He's, he, he, is he? But before you know it, he's the king. And the king is saying, I'm going to keep my word, and I'm going to love Mephibosheth. The devil knows your name, but he calls you by your sin, your affliction, your handicap, your reputation, your family's reputation. He calls you by all the defeated, negative stuff of our sin condition. But your heavenly Father knows your sin, and he says, I'm choosing to forget it with a perfect forgetfulness and to always remember your name. And to dignify your name by speaking it with a tender love and acceptance. I was down in Florida this winter. We went there uh, kind of half work, half pleasure. And um, we visited a church we used to pastor in Lakeland. First church I ever pastored, and it's never recovered, but uh, (laughs) they're doing their best. we visited this church, and I bumped into a district superintendent that I knew uh, probably hadn't seen him in 30 years. And uh, I greeted him. It was nice to greet him. And the first words out of his mouth were, wow, you've gained a lot of weight since I last saw you. And uh, I, my first thought was I, I've learned a little bit to not say everything that enters my mind. Uh, my daughters tell me I'm losing my filters, but at least this time my filter kicked in because what I wanted to say was, with friends like you, who needs a bathroom scale? But, uh, but I didn't. I just said, yeah, oh, yeah, I sure have, <laughs> as I wanted to punch him in the nose. But anyway, why belabor the obvious, right? The devil knows your name, and I'm not saying the DS was the devil. <laughs> don't mishear me but he calls you by your sin your heavenly father knows your sin but he calls you by your name what was the second thing David said to Mephibosheth he said he said Mephibosheth and then the second phrase right out of his mouth don't be afraid <laughs> that's how Mephibosheth had lived his life that's how he'd been wired by the nurse that's why they'd run to Lodibar where no one could find them Live in the ghetto, it's a ghetto, but it's a safe ghetto for us because we're afraid. Taken together, all of these apparent identities left Mephibosheth a lost soul, a fatherless, motherless child. He had no idea of the grace that was already available to him for the believing and the receiving. So what was his true identity? And we'll do this very quickly because it's time to conclude. He was an adopted child of the king. I already hinted at this. David had promised Jonathan. They made a vow to each other. Whoever survived would take care of the other's descendants. David survived, became the king, kept his promise, took care of the descendants, 1 Samuel chapter 20. He was an adopted child of the king. He had no cause for hiding or self-loathing. He was a picture of kindness, restoration, and provision. In fact, 2 Samuel 9, verse 7. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you 
all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. For two years in Canada, after we were uh, invited to depart the church we were leading, uh, we lived without income except from the hand of God. And this verse that had comforted me in my lameness began to comfort me in my incomelessness. And I trusted that I was sitting at the king's table and things would be restored. And they were, and I wish I could go into it, I won't. I'll just say daughters and family and children and love and provision and a job that's brought me now to the time of retirement. He was welcomed home from Lodibar to Jerusalem. Lodibar the ghetto to Jerusalem, the city of our God, the city of peace where he could live. He had a son of his own. And then the king says, I'm going to do more for you than even that. Wow. There's just no way for me to tell you how much I have lived and believed this text. The king says to Ziba the servant, the servant of Saul, who had not fully transferred his allegiance to David, but was doing his best to be a good servant because that's where his bread was buttered. The king says to Ziba, you're going to take care of Mephibosheth. Now remember, when Ziba had introduced Mephibosheth, he'd said, yeah, there's one, there's one grandson left named Mephibosheth, but he's crippled. Don't waste your time on him. And David says, oh yes, I'm going to waste my time on him. In fact, you're going to join me in wasting your time on him, Ziba. You're going to provide for him and his sons and descendants. And you and your sons and servants are to farm the land and bring in the crops so the grandson of the master may be provided for. And then that wonderful little parenthesis, I noted it as we read it. He had 15 sons and 20 servants. So there was plenty of help, plenty of help. We go on to find that Mephibosheth even tried to deceive David into taking half of Saul's uh, land because Mephibosheth said to David, or I mean, uh, uh, Ziba said to David, Mephibosheth has attempted to deceive you. And David believed Ziba and cut Mephibosheth's provision in half. Then David, and this is all in 2 Samuel 19, we can't take time to read it. Then David learns that Ziba was lying, that Mephibosheth hadn't attempted to deceive. So David apologizes to Mephibosheth and says, I'll give everything back to you. And what does Mephibosheth say? 2 Samuel 19. Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take everything now that my Lord the king has returned home safely. This is what I want you to hear. Mephibosheth, having received the provision of the father, then having been slandered by an enemy, having lost at least some of that provision, having been offered that provision back, turns to the father and says, I don't really need the provision, I just need you. That's where we live, Christians. 
It's great to be accepted, to be forgiven, to be given a new name, to walk in communion with the king, to sit at the king's table. But all we really need is him. And Mephibosheth said, I don't really need stuff. I just need you. Living in such intimacy with the king, upper room, college of prayer, that it's no longer about his table, but rather his presence, his friendship, his lordship. Let's be done. How would you describe your Christian experience today? Are you living in Lodi Bar in any area of your life? Pornography is living in Lodabar. Addictions are living in Lodabar. Defeated, faithless expectations that are more fear than faith is living in Lodabar. Broken relationships, and sometimes they're broken and you can't heal them. I've got a couple of those. But if you've done your best to heal them, then you're not living in Lodabar. But if you're willing to just hate from a distance, you've isolated yourself and you're living in Lodabar. Or are you sitting at the king's table? Or are you somewhere in between? This is maybe more like most of us, right? We commute between victory and defeat. We commute between faith and fear. You can't live comfortably in both places. The king of kings who will reign from David's throne forever is seeking you. Is there anyone to whom I can show kindness? Where are they? I want to bring them home and unveil grace and love and forgiveness and a new identity. Romans chapter 8, and I don't know if I'm to pronounce a benediction. If I am, I'll use this again, but I'll use it here and pray. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16 from a contemporary version. This resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a childlike What's next, Papa? God's Spirit touches our spirit and confirms who we really are. We know who He is and we know who we are, Father and children, and we know we're going to get what's coming to us, an unbelievable inheritance. Lord, I pray for anybody in the room who limps They may limp physically, they may have pain, their glucose levels may be high, or their blood pressure is out of control. Their cancer markers have returned. The loss of their marriage still grieves them. The failure in employment is an anchor around their neck. The habit that cannot seem to be broken causes them to feel like they should sit in the back of the church if they show up at all. I ask you, God and Father of David, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit present 
in the person who looks like Jesus to come to that one even as you came to me in my brokenness and speak healing over them. Speak hope into them. Give them your Abba embrace and remind them that they can stand on the word of God. They can quit thinking of themselves as a dead dog and begin to recognize their daily moment-by-moment privilege as a child of the King. Oh, God, help us to eat at the King's table every day, every moment of our lives. Bring that text back to everyone in the room, even as you bring it back to me, so that I can walk with joy and peace and trust and fearlessness. Oh, Lord, I also pray for the church. I thank you for the elders who lead. I thank you for the transition that is before us and the moments with Nathan upcoming in a few weeks. And I ask that your kingdom will come, your will will be done at First Baptist Church Jackson as it is in heaven. We love you and worship you and thank you for calling us your own. Amen.